1: From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is take two. Me Martinez, there have been over 50 attempts to recall a California governor. The only other time it qualified for ballot, it worked. We'll hear how this attempt on Gavin Newsom compares to Gray Davis. Plus, a detailed history of Latin music crossover hits told through seven songs. From Feliciano to Selena, and from Ricky Martin to, yes, the Biebs. It's all ahead on take two. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. This is Take Two. Me Martinez, thanks for
3: joining us. Coming up. What i always loved about reggaeton is that it's very ours. It was like a very distinctive beat that was our beat.
1: That's right. It is our beat. Now we're going to take a little break from all the crazy world events and talk about the history of Latin music that's just ahead. But first, got to give you our daily dose of news analysis, or we just wouldn't be us. Coronavirus case counts are coming down all over California, life is feeling a little more normal ish. Now, Los Angeles might even enter the least restrictive yellow tier next week if things continue to trend in the right direction. Yet Governor Gavin Newsom will still face a recall in the fall. As of yesterday, the campaign to unseat him gathered enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. Here to explain it all is Laurel Rosenhall with CalMatters.org. Laurel, welcome back.
2: Thanks so much, eh?
1: All right. Before we get into uh where we are, let's talk about where we were, as in when exactly the recall campaign got started.
2: Yeah, this campaign started last year um before the pandemic. So if you actually read the fine print that on the petitions that people have been signing, It doesn't even say a word about the pandemic. It's um, pretty typical conservative criticism of a democratically run state where, um, you know, they're criticizing California policies um, for being immigrant friendly, um, criticizing Newsom for being anti-death penalty, for his work on gun control, um, things that um, conservatives have been critical of for a long time um homelessness tax rates stuff like that
1: yeah june uh 10th i think is is when uh the recall petition was launched and yeah you're right no no mention of the word pandemic coronavirus or anything like that um so considering what we know now i wonder if they would have included it uh, back then if they knew if they had known now how did the pandemic the laurel play a role in keeping the recall alive to keep it uh, keep the momentum going
2: In two really critical ways. Um, One was sort of a technical and one was more of a mood, right? So the technical thing was that because of the pandemic, the recall proponents went to court and were able to get an order from a judge that gave them more time to gather signatures. You know, recalls are very, very common that people try to try to do a recall, but they usually can't get the number of signatures they need in the amount of time that they had. But because the judge gave them more time because the early stay at home order, he said, you know, made it impossible for them to, to really, um, get a fair shot at gathering their signatures. So he gave them more time to get their signatures. And during that time that was added on, that was when some of the really harsh, lockdown rules started happening. And we saw a lot of people um, blowing back against, you know, against the restrictions, against how long they were lasting, against the fact that they were sort of opening and closing. And it was very hard to understand. And people felt that, you know, small businesses were being harmed in ways that large businesses were not. And, you know, and so all of that, because of the pandemic rules that Newsom was doing, it really fueled frustration with him on the part of of some Californians.
1: Yeah, the recall stars aligned on this one. And just like we've had surges in COVID infections, the recall also got a surge in support after one now infamous dinner date. Uh, Laurel, remind us what that was.
2: Yeah, might be the most politically expensive dinner in California history. Newsom um, went out to the French Laundry, which is a super swanky elite um, restaurant in wine country up in Northern California. Um, he was there to celebrate the birthday of a friend of his who is a lobbyist. There was, you know, about a dozen people around the table. Um, some other lobbyists were there, and it, he said it was outdoors, but then it was kind of in a room that had three walls and a ceiling. Um, And, you know, he was not wearing a mask. And this was all at a time when dining was open in that county at the time. So, you know, it was technically following the rules. But Newsom's public messaging – to all of California at that time in, in early November was, you know, the surge is coming. Everyone's got to be careful. Don't mingle. Thanksgiving's coming. Don't see your family, you know, don't mix outside your household. And so um, that just, you know, once those photos came out of him at that dinner party, it, it really fueled a lot of people feeling like he was just being very hypocritical. And the recall did see a surge of signatures after that, um, came out. It got tons of publicity in conservative media, and um, it, it it did fuel a, a part of the signature drive.
1: Yeah, and then you have uh, EDD paying out billions of dollars to scammers. The vaccine distribution didn't go smoothly. It just it was a lot lined up to keep it going and to keep people's you know feelings kind of locked in on that. So that brings us now, Laurel, to where we are and the threshold that was crossed this week. So what exactly happened this week that uh, sparked uh, what we now know?
2: right so the in order to qualify for the ballot the recall campaign had to get w- about 1.5 million valid signatures and so there's been this ongoing process um over the last many months where the uh, the the county elections officials have been um, counting the signatures and then checking them to see you know that they're valid to make sure that Ooh, people we're, we're going to get into
1: that laurel because I love the, how they count them but what we yeah, got to keep keep going though
2: Oh, yeah. So anyways, um, this week, the count came back that there were 1.6 million valid signatures, which means they had more than they needed, which means that it's almost for certain that this recall is going to go on the ballot.
1: Will they keep counting verified signatures? I mean, does that matter now? Or can they stop counting?
2: They do keep counting because technically the deadline is through you know, Thursday, but uh, um, after this thursday then things you know are kind of moving on to the next phase of of this process
1: and the particular number it's it's 1,495,709 what what is it about that number that uh, that makes it the the number
2: so the rule on the recall is that in order to get it on the ballot the supporters have to get 12% they have to get signatures from 12 from from the number that is the same as 12% of the people who voted in the last election for that office. So that number represents 12% of the people who voted in the 2018 gubernatorial election.
1: Okay, so those signatures are in. What's the next immediate step, the next right, right away, the thing they have to do right away?
2: So now comes this 30 day period where people can remove their, um, names from the, from the petitions if they want, it seems really unlikely that enough people would remove their names. It would have to be more than hundred thousand signatures, um, to drop below that, you know, number you said that is just under 1.5 million. um, but people do have the chance if they feel like they changed their mind or they didn't know what they were signing, they didn't quite understand it when they signed it, they can contact their elections office in their county and um, and basically ask to have their name removed. And so this period lasts for 30 days. And so that After that, we'll determine if there's still enough signatures, then the process continues. And if they lose enough signatures in that time, then the thing would not actually go to the ballot.
1: If they do, though, then they set a date, right?
2: Yeah, we still don't have the date. It's all very complicated. But yes, we (laughs) will eventually like we're kind of it's looking like it'll be in November Um, Right now, there's not a lot of specific dates spelled out. Everything's more like 60 days after this than 30 days after that. So, right now, we kind of have ballparks, but not an exact date.
1: We're making sense of the recall with Laurel Rosenhall of calmatters.org. Now, uh, I remember from 2003, Laurel, that voters will be asked two questions. Do they want to recall Newsom, yes or no? Then if more than 50% say yes, who should replace him? Now, Laurel, it all sounds very simple. Is it as simple as it sounds? Well,
2: it's a little bit weird because <laughs> <laughs> the first question, you only have two choices. So you automatically are going to have a majority either on the yes side or a majority either on the no side. Right. So yes is yes. You want to recall Newsom. No is no. You don't want to recall him. You want him to stay in office. Um, if if the yes side gets more than 50 percent, then he is recalled. But that second question in terms of who gets to replace him, there's going to be a lot of choices. Um, and probably it's it's unlikely that any of them will get more than 50% just because of the math of there being, you know, at least yeah. dozens, if not more than that, choices. So it's very possible that um, if the recall wins, with more than fifty percent yes on the first question, that the person who gets elected would actually be elected with a minority of the of the vote.
1: Yeah, it's just simple: the most votes wins, even without a majority. And there was there was over one hundred and thirty candidates, I think, back yep. in two thousand three. Yeah, it was a it was a crazy show. Um, okay, so now the verified signatures, because Laurel, in your story, you kind of detail exactly what goes into counting all of those signatures and really just looking at the signatures. So tell us, how does California make sure all those signatures, those verified signatures are good?
2: I mean, they really—they go through them one by one. They, The elections officers have, you know, they have people who are kind of like just doing this. In Orange County, they told me they've got 15 people who just have been doing, you know, checking these signatures. They look at the signature that came in on the petition. You know, they search them in their um, voter database to see if they're, you know, registered in that county. Um, if they've already signed a petition, they note that. They look at the shape of their signature. You know, do they... How do they do the loop on their letter j? and you know all of that stuff? So they check these things. And if there's doubles or if they the signature doesn't match, Um, It doesn't count. And so the reports that get sent by the counties up to the state report out the number of total signatures submitted, the number that were not valid, and then the number that were valid. So um, it's a it's a pretty detailed process. And the the um, while there have been some, um, you know, Republicans and conservatives who have tried to cast out on this, um, on this process because, you know, obviously a lot of our government in California is run by Democrats though at the County level, that really depends on where you live. Um, but the, the recall proponents themselves, Republicans themselves said that told me that they had great faith in, in these elections officials and really didn't think there would be any game playing at the local level. You
1: know, Laurel, when I was a a teenager, I used to do you have different signatures? I was practicing. I was. I didn't know what I wanted to go with with my adult life. My grandpa always told me it's going to be important. You need to pick one and go with it. I mean, they're looking at the slant of the writing, the spacing between the letters. It is deep how how far these people are going to compare these signatures.
2: It is. And, you know, this could be another story for another day, but I think the more that we move into the digital era, people are getting out of the habit of using their signatures. You know, there is more and more kind of like people forget, you know, how they signed their official documents Mm -hmm. years and years ago. We're now all just kind of like typing off our initials to... Um, you know, release things online. So yeah, but that's a different topic. <laughs> now,
1: yeah, absolutely. Now, Gavin Newsom in tweets has called this the Republican recall. Is he right?
2: Yes, there are many Republicans behind it. Yes, the California Republican Party is behind it. Yes, national Republicans are jumping in. That's all absolutely true. And the um, people who began the the petition are conservative activists. Um, but it's also true that, you know, there are some um, Democrats and just kind of independent voters who have voted for Democrats in the past or given money to Democrats in the past who who are um, encouraging support for it, including a few Silicon Valley tech executives who um, are, you know, have kind of high profiles on their own podcasts and social media followings and are really fed up with Newsom's um pandemic response and are supporting the recall. So these are folks who you know have given to Democrats in the past, not not at all kind of like party loyalists, definitely more like independents, but they have a record of supporting Democrats and some of them have even given to to Newsom in the past and now they're they're pro recall. Um they 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 seem to be more like in the minority, but that that is in the mix of the people who are for this thing.
1: Tell us about Jennifer Harris from Encinitas. You mentioned her in your story?
2: Yeah, she's just a really interesting person who, um, is a, just a very ordinary Californian who, um, who, who voted for Newsom in 2018. She actually ran for, um, a school board in, um, Southern California as a registered endorsed Democrat in 2018. She didn't win, but, um, She she had been kind of a lifelong Democrat. And then and and she thought Newsom did a good job early in the pandemic in terms of like the early shutdown that he did and taking a really cautious approach. But as the months wore on and more science evolved about kind of the the safety of being outdoors and things like that, she got really fed up with the restrictions on outdoor dining and on schools, you know, having um, a house full of kids. Um, not being able to go to school for a year or more is extremely challenging and does kind of cause some people to question the, the effectiveness of, of the government. So so she kind of became um, a recall supporter, eventually signed the petition and and left the Democratic Party.
1: And one great thing in, uh, in your story, this, that the last stat that kind of stuck with me is that there have been 54 governor recall attempts since 1913, one qualified, and it was successful. It was Gray Davis.
2: Yes. um, Trying to do a recall in California is very common. Succeeding is not as common. And looks like we're going to get to find out pretty soon which which way this one goes with with Newsom.
1: That's Laurel Rosenhall with calmatters.org. Laurel, thanks a lot.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: In the past year or so, there have been a lot of critters in California that have dealt with all kinds of strange diseases. Rabbits uh, have had a virus that have been killing off a lot of rabbits. Fish up in Northern California have a brain disease. Well, now there's another brain disease, and this time it's afflicting our black bears in California, making them kind of dopey, and that's dangerous for the bears. We'll tell you all about it when Take Two continues.
2: All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water. But not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We
3: don't want
4: to cut equal with everybody else.
2: Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
1: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm E. Martinez. A disease is affecting the brains of California black bears. And unfortunately, not a whole lot is known about it. But one thing is strangely consistent. The ailment makes bears act uncharacteristically friendly to people. And some have called the behavior shockingly dog-like. For more on the peculiar bear disease, we have Brandon Monk, veterinarian for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Brandon, I know a lot is still not known, but what can you tell us about this disease and how it affects uh, black bears'
4: brains? It was identified by some veterinarians and pathologists back in 2014 and described as an encephalitis, which literally means inflammation of the brain. The characteristics of, of that inflammation suggest it's probably caused by a virus. There's two viruses that seem like they could be good candidates, but there's also some other things that we haven't completely ruled out yet. And one of those is, is a parasite that could cause similar inflammation.
1: Now, how does it change their behavior?
4: Any changes to the brain can potentially affect behavior. A really good example is rabies virus. The classic rabies virus infection is Cujo, like this really aggressive dog that wants to bite everything. And that's the virus being advantageous for the animal to bite other animals so the virus can spread. Now there's another form of rabies called the dumb form of rabies that changes the behavior in a different way. And they're just really docile, kind of dopey and quote unquote dumb. So that's a a really classic example of how a virus in that case can affect the brain and can change an animal's behavior.
1: Is it in that moment harmful for the bears? I mean, are they still able to survive in the wild?
4: Unless the animal is able to overcome it and recover, and we don't know if they can or cannot, we just don't have enough information. The assumption is that they probably are not going to survive. At the one end, there's this behavioral change that seems to make them kind of dog-like. And then we've also seen head tilts, tremors, and seizures. And seizure is not good. And I would assume that if it can progress to seizure, then it's unlikely that they'll survive.
1: Can a bear, once they have it, uh, give it to another bear?
4: We're not sure about that either. The assumption is yes. Okay. What about to people or other animals? There doesn't seem to be any evidence that they can give it to people or other animals. The two viruses that floated to the top of our of our likely list are viruses that are typically very specific to a species or that group of species.
1: We're talking with California Department of Fish and Wildlife veterinarian Brandon Monk. So, Brandon, what happens when you guys uh, actually encounter a bear that you think might be dealing with this? Uh, do, do you do you have to treat it? Uh, If so, what do you do? Because I can't imagine that uh, that bear is going to be out back in the wild with other bears.
4: It kind of depends on on the behaviors or the the signs that we're seeing. If it's one of these dog-like animals where they're just overly friendly, then we try to get them into our facility and try to observe them. And we're really looking for any evidence that it's just habituation versus a neurologic condition. We have no treatment for it they seem to develop seizures. Now you can treat seizures, but this animal is going to have it for the rest of its life. And whoever is keeping the animal, like the zoo or, or sanctuary, now has long-term 20, 30 years worth of increased medical expenses, increased care. Most of these facilities are on a string budget as it is the answer we usually get is thank you, but no thank you. Since it seems like the, the neurologic condition can progress um, and we're definitely not releasing them back in the wild because it's an unknown risk to other bears and unlikely to survive in the wild. We don't feel like they're a good placement candidate either. Um, so we end up euthanizing them and and we end up doing whatever we can after that, to gain as much information as we can to help bears in the future.
1: So for someone that maybe is, is heading up to black bear country for camping and wilderness trips, if they see a bear that is acting dopey, acting docile, they shouldn't assume, uh, you know, I guess that they have this at the moment. But what should they do, though? I mean, if, they, if you encounter a bear that is acting like this, should you still steer clear like you would any other bear?
4: Don't feed it. Don't approach it. For the most part, it seems to affect young bears. So the vast majority of the bears that we've seen with this condition have been yearlings. So just coming out of their first hibernation. And it seems to be like an early spring thing. They're coming out of hibernation early when we see them. So they're just a year old. Um, So they're smaller bears, but they should be with a sow and they're not. So that's kind of a little bit of a red flag for us. We've seen one or two that are older, but we haven't seen any really adults that are like this. And that may be just because we haven't looked hard enough, or that may because this is something that tends to affect immuno-incompetent animals, and, and young animals tend to be less immuno-competent. If you do come across a bear that, that seems to be overly friendly, let someone know. Let California Department of Fish and Wildlife biologists know, or a park ranger. Try to get some coordinates, you know, if everybody has a phone these days. So it's pretty easy to get some GPS coordinates. That's super helpful. Um, And try to describe the behavior as best you can.
1: All right. That's California Department of Fish and Wildlife Veterinarian, Brandon Monk. Brandon, thanks a lot. Thank you. An astonishing amount of warehouse space has been built in the Inland Empire in the past few decades. Enough interior space for 6,500 football fields. And it's all stacked with cargo heading to the rest of the country, as well as all the household goods we order ourselves online and expect to show up the very next day. But there is environmental health and quality of living costs to all of those warehouses. And here to tell us all about it is KPCC's infrastructure correspondent, Sharon McNary. Sharon, welcome back.
0: Hey there, thanks.
1: All right. Now, there is a whole lot of warehouses in the IE. Is the pace of building them slowing down at all?
0: Well, while most open space along the freeways is nearly exhausted, there are still plans to build more. I've been reporting on a 200-acre project that would be built on land now occupied by more than 100 homes in Bloomington big warehouses are also being built farther east in places like Beaumont. And it's not just an IE thing. Our demand for next day or even same day delivery means that warehouses are also going up in places like Orange County and San Diego, which haven't had quite as many up till now.
1: Now we know that diesel trucks can be noisy, polluting, but what are some of the other problems that come with warehouses?
0: Well, people develop asthma and other breathing problems. Low-density residential land disappears. Hot warehouse roofs and asphalt parking lots create these heat islands, for example. And then there's the fairly low wages and difficult working conditions inside the warehouses. There's a couple ways to look at these problems. There's the environmental justice point of view, that the clustering of warehouses along highways in areas that tend to have lower incomes and higher numbers of Black and Latino residents puts a disproportionate burden of the pollution on those populations. And then there's this other point of view, which was new to me, called spatial justice. The concept of having so many warehouses in places like Riverside and San Bernardino counties has consequences for the entire region. I spoke with Julianne Allison, a UC Riverside professor who studies the harms from warehouses, and she explains this concept. So San Diego, you know, Orange County, to some extent the nicer parts of Los Angeles, have been able to enjoy good air quality you know, and higher incomes and nicer homes and better standards of living and better schools and all of those kinds of things because the nastiness is allowed to be in this geographic area meaning the Inland Empire. And she says that spatial justice would mean that warehouse developers and operators should compensate people in the inland region who carry the warehousing burden for neighboring counties.
1: All right, let's talk solutions now. What tools do communities have to slow down the saturation of warehouses?
0: There are some grassroots groups that try to organize residents to push local governments to deny warehouse applications. And when that doesn't work, the fallback position is to force the warehouse developers to build less onerous structures that provide more community benefits. And
1: is that something that local governments can do?
0: Some cities do insist on higher standards and more community benefits in exchange for letting the land be transformed into warehouses. The city of Riverside actually put a moratorium on new warehouses in the north end of the city, and it stayed on for several months until a new set of good neighbor warehouse rules were imposed. I spoke with Benjamin Reynoso, a San Bernardino City Council member. He's pushing his fellow council members to put their own moratorium on new warehouses. He also wants to study older warehouses and eventually force them to get greener and cleaner.
4: My goal and dream is to retrofit and make the ideal type of electric sustainable logistics facility.
0: He wants older warehouses converted to use only solar power, to have skylights and windows installed for natural light during the daytime. He wants truck fleets to be 100% electric. Meanwhile, developers are increasingly anticipating these demands, and sometimes they come in with better, cleaner designs. But a lot still depends on community and local government responses to the plans.
1: That's KPCC infrastructure correspondent Sharon McNary. Sharon, thanks a lot. You bet. Music and artists have had many breakthrough moments over the years. Crossover hit, that's what it's called. But which one was the first? Which one was the biggest? And which one had the longest lasting impact? Well, a new book explores that history, starting with a feliz navidad from half a century ago. To the Biebs, Justin Bieber, singing in Spanish, although very, very slowly. It's take two or more take two coming up when take two continues. Stay with us.
4: How to LA is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles and downtown was just exploding. It's politics.
1: It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country.
4: And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Amy Martinez. The History of Latin Music in the United States. Man, where to begin? Well, lucky for the rest of us, there are smart people writing books about this kind of stuff. People such as Leila Kobo, Vice President and Latin Industry Lead at Billboard. Her new book is Decoding Despacito, An Oral History of Latin Music. And in it, she relays that history through her own experience as the world's authority on popular Latin music and through stories from the artists and producers who made the songs. Leila Kobo, welcome back to Take Two
3: thank you i am thrilled to be here with you talking music
1: before we get into the songs i do want to ask you about the label latin music and what exactly that means i mean is it a a song sung in spanish is it a song with latin beats what defines the label latin music
3: the label latin music as defined by billboard and by the grammys and by the latin grammys is music that's sung predominantly in spanish so it doesn't matter who makes it and of course we have instrumental music that has some latin underlying strong latin beats and we consider that latin music too
1: okay perfect now you started your book in 1970 half a century ago with this classic
3: feliz navidad feliz navidad feliz navidad prospero año y fe-
1: So that's the classic there, Jose Feliciano, Feliz Navidad. Leila, why begin there?
3: It was the perfect starting point. First, because it was 50 years, so it was a nice round number. Second, because Jose is still very much alive, and I wanted to have live artists to be able to talk about the songs directly. And the third reason is Feliz Navidad was a massive hit in every sense of the word. It was the first big Latin song, song in Spanish and English that was a Christmas song. This had never happened before. It was very successful. And the fact that it's still successful 50 years later, that everybody can still sing that song, that is really, to me, the definition of a hit. It's a song that not only makes history in its time, but transcends that time and opens a major door. And Feliciano was very conscientious of what he was doing. He told me, I sung in English so that radio would not have an excuse to not play the song because it was in Spanish. That's amazing,
1: isn't it, Leila? He, he knew it back then that he had to make sure he had to put some English in it, too, so that uh, there would be no excuse not to hear the Spanish part.
3: I didn't know that that had been his rationale. And in including I want to wish you a Merry Christmas in the song. And of course, in the book, you you do the whole trajectory. And you end up with a song like Mi Gente, where Jay Balvin insisted in singing in Spanish yeah. for the entirety of the song, and he still made number one.
1: All right. Now, Layla, regrettably, I can't include all the songs of the book. I had to make some <laughs> tough choices. So for the next tune, I want to jump ahead 14 years to a duet that not only created a huge hit song, but may have actually invented the term crossover. I
0: dedicate this song
1: to all the girls I've loved
3: before. To all the girls I've wanted. May
1: I, may I. To all the girls I've loved before, Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias. So, Leila, how on earth did this song come together?
3: This is such a priceless story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book. And Julio, when he recorded this, was one of the biggest global stars in the planet. But he hadn't recorded in English. He had recorded just one song in English, and it was like a one-off. And they were planning this big, massive crossover where he was going to record songs in English. And Willie Nelson happened to hear him sing in a hotel in London over on the radio. And he said, oh, I I like this voice. And and like things got into motion and they pitched Willie a song with Julio. Julio had no idea who Willie Nelson was, like none. And he talks about (laughs) flying into Austin to his ranch getting out of his car you know here's julio i can just picture him like with his blazer and his white starch linen pants and here's willie <laughs> in overalls <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well there's a great farm aid video of willie and julio singing together on stage and you're right it is striking how different they look uh, because yeah uh, willie's wearing what uh, like a tank top or a t-shirt and shorts <laughs> and julio is obviously just dressed to the nines but it's two very different people in sync through music which i think makes it beautiful
3: that is exactly what's beautiful i think about all these stories because this song is in english but i included it in a quote unquote latin history because it was such a monumental step for julio who didn't speak english to record the song in english with a quintessential american artist and they just came together and did music and had fun and became friends. And that just shows you like how music can bridge all these differences, even language.
1: Now, while the world was grooving to the smooth sounds of Julio and Willie, right around the same time, another song blasted out of Miami, Florida. And I swear, if you don't still, to this day, move some part of your body, you might not be alive.
3: Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer.
1: Yeah, there it is, Conga, Gloria Estefan, and Miami Sound Machine. Layla, how did this song expand the definition of Latin music for American listeners?
3: this song was so huge well first of all i have to say because this blew me away when she told me you hear that ah in the intro yeah yeah that is james brown oh they sampled james brown hey can you believe that like all these years listening to the song and she tells me this i'm like are you serious she said yes we sampled him and we paid for the sample so that song was in english because it was such a percussive sound that it was such a percussive lyric and such a percussive beat that she couldn't do it properly in spanish but the beats were so latin and when they took it to the label you know they were doing their crossover at the time and the label said no one will ever play this this is like way too latin why don't you take out the horns (laughs) why don't you take out the percussion and they Uh. said no no we're not going to do that and they got They got this radio promoter that really believed in the song and he pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and it broke through and it topped all these Billboard charts. This had never happened, which is why this song is here because it showed that people are willing to hear different things.
1: Especially, Layla, if you could party and dance to it. I mean, that's that's the reason why I think any American love this song.
3: Yes, and and Gloria and Emilio say that when they recorded it, they had gone to Holland and and played a conga line at a club and people had gone crazy. (laughs) So out of that came the idea of doing the song. But what they say is they recorded the song and then they started playing it in gigs in Miami. They were doing like weddings and quinceaneras. And every time they played the song, people would get up and dance. So Gloria says, I didn't care what anyone told me. I knew this song was a hit.
1: How dare they get rid of the horns, get rid of the drums. Oh, my (laughs) God. We're talking to Billboard's Leila Cobo about her new book, uh, Decoding Despacito, An Oral History of Latin Music. Now, you have a chapter on 1994's Macarena, and for me, the evolutionary link, DNA link is strong with Conga, but uh, you know, now I wanted to get into the biggest what could have been story really in all of Latin music history. That is Selena, Amor Prohibido, Leila Selena was shot and killed five months, five months before her album, Dreaming of You, made her an icon. I know her story has been told many times in many different ways, but what I think gets lost is how her crossover path was so unique. Tell us about uh, her crossover path.
3: So unique, and I should note that I said at the beginning that I wanted only to interview live musicians, and this is the one exception And it's because I was able to interview her father who had been, you know, by her side through her journey. And Selena was born in Texas, did not speak Spanish. And she learned Spanish so that she could record in Spanish. And uh, she started recording these Mexican cumbias, which are very much of Texas where she lived. But even so, she found like this, this kind of mix of traditional Mexican cumbia with Tex-Mex and with like a tinge of country so it was kind of very yeah, sophisticated yeah. music despite its apparent simplicity and of course this song is beautiful because it's forbidden love
1: We're going to continue our conversation with Vice President and Latin Industry Lead at Billboard, Leila Kobo right after the break, stay with us
4: It's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm L.A.S. senior science reporter Jacob Margolis, and I help
1: Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise.
4: It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the Western U.S. to affect cities on the Eastern Seaboard. So that we can better
1: protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's
4: a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down. L.A.S. Independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Bailando
1: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Martinez. We continue our conversation now with Leila Cobo, Vice President and Latin Industry Lead at Billboard, about her new book called Decoding Despacito, An Oral History of Latin Music. Coming up on the new millennium, it seemed as if Latin music had hit a lull and that Latin artists weren't really a part of the mainstream, mainstream pop culture at least. You had in the book uh, Elvis Crespo Suavemente and Rob Thomas and Santana Smash Smooth, but those hits and a certain Grammy performance laid the seeds for this big brown bomba. Uh-oh.
3: I, I gotta say, I hear it, and I, it still astounds me how good that song is. It's a is.
1: great song. I mean, it is an ma- amazing song. Ricky Martin, another megastar around the world, but not that well-known in the United States. Uh, Layla, when this song exploded, though, what seemed possible for Latin music that maybe did not seem possible before?
3: Ricky was huge for Latin music. Ricky was a humongous catalyst, and... I think what people don't realize is that had it not been very specifically for Ricky Martin, that quote-unquote Latin explosion of 1999, 2000, 2001, it might not have happened to that degree because Ricky was such a convincing star and they had to fight to get him to perform at those Grammy Awards. The, The Grammys didn't want this performance. They said no one really knew who this guy was. And to his credit, Tommy Mottola fought tooth and nail, got him into the show. And of course, I encourage anyone who's listening who hasn't seen this to look up the performance because just him getting up there, singing, uh, he sang the Cup of Life, actually. Yeah, and everybody yeah. getting up and suddenly the whole world the next day was talking about, who is this guy? I, and and that, then,
1: You know what, Leila, that bothered me, though. I got to admit, I, it bothered me because of who he already was, that it almost was like, wait, this guy I just think. arrived? No, he's been here.
3: He's been here, but mainstream America didn't know. And Rosie O'Donnell very famously said, oh, I I didn't know him before tonight, but he's so hot, right? And then four months later, five months later, he comes out with his album in English and with this song in English and Spanish. And it went to number one on the Hot 100. And he was phenomenal. I mean, he was the best ambassador possible for the music in every regard.
1: Yeah, and there was a lot of feeling of belonging, I think, for a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Time Magazine's cover, May of 1999, the story's title was Latin Music Pops. We've seen the future. It looks like Ricky Martin. It sings like Mark Anthony. It dances like Jennifer Lopez. Que bueno. So, yeah, there was a a lot of feeling of belonging uh, for a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Now, post-Living La Vida Loca, around 2004, a brand-new thing emerged. It was straight from the barrios of Puerto Rico. Its sound was raw, sweaty, sticky and hot daddy yankee gasolina leila how unique and profound was the impact of reggaeton led by gasolina and and daddy yankee
3: huge this was music that was playing in puerto rico and what i Always loved about reggaeton is that it's very ours, meaning it's very Latin. It wasn't simply rap or hip-hop translated to Spanish. It was like a very distinctive beat that was our beat. And what's really noticeable about him is he was developing this music in Puerto Rico. It was happening in Puerto Rico. It wasn't happening outside, And Daddy Yankee was smart enough to say, you know what, this is going to be huge because I see it happening here. I have to find a way to export it, to make it big. And he got together with Carlos Perez, who's a video director and a designer. And he said, I want to have an album cover and a video like the big rap and hip hop guys in the States. I want to have it that quality. I want to do everything they do because I want everybody to look at this and hear this and say, this is just as good, only it's different.
1: And it was DIY music. I mean, he did it himself, and it really set the table for what a lot of artists do today, like, say, Chance the Rapper. I mean, he, he basically did put out his music by himself.
3: He definitely did, and he still does. And a lot of uh, reggaeton artists still do. And while Daddy Yankee didn't invent reggaeton, and he wasn't the first one or anything like that, his was the first, I would say, big global reggaeton hit, and it was that song.
1: Now, all of this brings us to the title track, uh, Leila Soto Speak, a song that came out in 2017 that in many ways showcases how far Latin music has come and how much further it can go.
2: Despacito. quiero respirar tu deja que te diga cosas al
4: para que te si no estás conmigo.
1: Despacito, Luis Fonsi featuring Daddy Yankee and Justin Bieber. Now, Leila, in the book, you write, movements are never the product of a single action. And yet many of the recent developments in Latin music are labeled pre or post Despacito. Leila, what did you mean by that?
3: The song was just so, so massive, A, that first of all, it's the most viewed video in the history of YouTube. It has over 7 billion views. It became the living La Vida Loca of the 2000s. I would say everybody has heard this song or it feels like everybody has. And so suddenly you had a song that everybody was talking about and people started to look and say, oh, what's the next Despacito? What's the next artist? But of course, before it came, you know, Bailando to me by Enrique Iglesias is the great precursor yeah. to Despacito among others. But Despacito really, I think, had a mark to before and then after and the song was such a hit. And then to have Justin Bieber, who is arguably the biggest pop star in the world, say, I want to sing in that song. And you know what? I'm going to do it in Spanish. Yes. And yep. he gets a diction coach in Bogota, Colombia, where he heard the song. He goes to work. He records it in, in one day. The, the whole story is very remarkable. And if you saw it in a movie and someone said, oh, yeah, they did a remix and 24 hours and released it in 48, you would say, oh, these people know nothing about the music industry. And that, in fact, is what happened.
1: Layla, where, where does Latin music go? I mean, where, what do you see as the new avenues for Latin music in the future?
3: Well, streaming has been a great ally to Latin music. A, Latin music is growing faster. The consumption of Latin music is growing faster in this country than any other genre because of streaming. Uh, Latin America is the biggest growing region in terms of of music revenues, according to the IFPI. And I think it's because streaming allows this very music-centric society made up of all these countries to consume the music wherever it is. And at the same time, it's allowed the world to find this music that's very fun to consume. You know, a lot of it is up-tempo. It's fun to dance to. You react to it very viscerally. So I don't think Latin is going to abate. I think music in Spanish or music that's based in Latin rhythms is going to continue to grow.
1: That is Billboard's Leila Cobo. Her new book is Decoding Despacito, An Oral History of Latin Music. Leila, thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Another song that was in the book uh, by Leila Cobo, Decoding Despacito. It's uh, worth a read. It's also worth a listen. If you missed any part of Take Two, just head to wherever you get your podcasts, and there we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can hear this segment again. It's worth it for the music alone, uh, if not for anything else. Um, also, you you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at L A. Martinez, LA. That's at L A. Martinez, LA. and that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time, Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.